In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Yeah, one hundred percent it should be. There's nothing going on around here. So, what do you think of this idea of parents being fined? Yeah, they should be definitely because they have control over the kids. So. Anti-social behaviour bad around here? Have you seen much of it? Yeah, it does be. Like a few of the gangs, like do be hanging around up around the centres and stuff. Like when people go out shopping and all, and they just stuff everywhere. This idea of parents being whacked with fifty or hundred euro, you, you don't think it would work? Nah, it's not going to work. It's going to make things worse, man. You have your young lad here. When, when he I'll be young lad here he, now. When he becomes 13, 14, you don't want to be paying for fines. No, I won't be paying any fines for him. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, I'll have him with me at all times. What's the best way do you think I suppose for our young people to? To step away. Let's let's say for instance, like should I open a few more community centres for them, keep them more busy, you know what I mean? Keep them off the streets, so there's nothing for them to be doing around here, you know what I mean? They're gonna be getting up to all sorts around here. You can't blame them, can you? So look around the place, it's a bad environment anyway. You think parents should be fine for that? Yeah, definitely, hundred percent. I was mental but my ma wouldn't let me out then. And I ended up being nice to get out. So when this little one gets a bit older now. Oh her, she learns already, trust me. <laughs> I don't know why with nothing, nothing. Girl to be kind. Josh Crosby reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, have you ever wondered what exactly is normal? Well, take a listen to this. But I suppose almost as a social construct, what we tend to have is we have the crazy people on one side of a wall and the sane people on the other side of the wall. Does that wall actually exist? Yeah, you know, this is what I argue in the book. Um, Nobody's Normal is really about how we're changing our views from you either have an illness or you don't to one in which we all exist on a spectrum. You know, everybody gets sad. Everybody has anxiety. But there's a point at which sadness can go over into the um, area of depression, or there's a point at which anxiety can become debilitating. And what we need to do is we need to understand that we're all on this spectrum, and no one is immune from mental illness, and nobody is uh, separate or isolated from a world in which there are people who are mentally, whether it's our family or our friends. Mm. Now, you say in the book that Western doctors have been fixated on distinguishing real illnesses uh, uh, from fictional ones. Tell us a bit more about that. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that, um, you know, doctors have for a long time tried to separate out um, mental versus physical conditions, as if we could really, you know, draw a line there and distinguish um, between the two, and that somehow mental illnesses don't have a reality that physical illnesses do. You know, you can't see a mental illness in a microscope, right? And so um, this somewhat of an invisibility about mental illness has led people to uh, come up with other ways to um, to give meaning to it, that maybe it's a person's character is bad or they're weak or they um, have, you know, a bad uh, uh, history of, uh, of poor parenting or whatever it might be. Mm. And so because we can't see it in a microscope, it opens it up to all kinds of symbolic distortions in which we demean people and um, are prejudiced against them. And, you know, you could come up with any medicine you want, but that doesn't change histories of discrimination or of sexism or racism or other kinds of, uh, of, of ways that we hurt people. Yeah, and, and there seems to be, that seems to be a common thread in, in, in this story, in, in you know, the, the, the tendency to uh, associate psychosis in various forms with black people for some reason. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, the whole um, history of slavery was um, informed by psychiatry because psychiatrists argued and politicians um, believed them back in you know the 19th century that um, slavery was a way to protect African-Americans from insanity. There was even an illness name called drapetomania, and the symptom of the illness was to want to be free. If you were a slave and wanted to be free, I mean, that was actually an illness. And so, yeah, though, I mean, it's a it's an incredible history. That's the, the what I try to tell in the book. And I infuse it with my personal life, too, because my great grandfather was a psychiatrist, my grandfather, my father. I'm married to a psychiatrist. So my whole world. That's, is sort that's of serious pressure there, Richard. <laughs> yeah, I was a great disappointment becoming an anthropologist. But. I tell you, the value of being an anthropologist is you step outside the world and you can detach yourself and you can look critically at it. Mm. But even if all of these different people spanned many generations in my family, they all shared one thing. And it was an understanding that mental illnesses are kind of a double illness. There's first the suffering itself, but then there's that added suffering that society lays onto it, you know, that negative moral judgment. That's what we need to get rid of. And nobody's been able to figure out how to do it. You know, we mm. do education campaigns, awareness campaigns, that doesn't seem to work. What nobody's normal argues is that we have to change the, our ideals of what we consider to be a good person. That's what it changes things. And that judgment, and, and I alluded to it in the introduction, it seems to be as old as humans. Does, does it spring largely from fear, do you think? I actually think it comes from the history of capitalism, where we have valued people who produce the most and we've devalued people who don't. And, you know, we 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 don't believe anymore that, you know, one uh, one's life is completely ordained by God, but rather that we have will and agency. And if we're not responsible in the way that capitalism wants us to be, we can be demeaned. We can we and, and we can even be removed. In fact, the very first asylums in Europe, whether it was the Limerick Asylum in 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 um, Ireland or or Bedlam in England or, or the Salpetriere in France, the first asylums had as their mandate to house the idle. It was all about people who didn't work. It wasn't about people who were crazy or ill necessarily. It was it had to do with work. If you didn't work, you were not fulfilling the ideals of a human being. Some fascinating insights there from anthropologist Roy Grinker from Moncrief. On Monday, American journalist Theo Padna spoke to Pat Kenny about being kidnapped in Syria. Here's a short clip. Now, you, you put up with so much and I'm wondering uh, how you retained your sanity in the face of all of this or did even the torture, um, the humiliations, the, the beatings, did they just become routine? No, no. Um, well, no, no, they don't become routine. I mean, they terrified me. Just the sight of the torture instrument, which is like a universal thing in all Syrian prisons. It's a kind of a cable or one of their instruments. Of course, they, the, 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 um, like this, when they, when they begin a torture um, session, the first thing they do is they put the blindfold on you. So the blindfold, when I saw them putting that blindfold on me, that would trigger my terror. And then you hear the handcuffs coming out of their pockets. That, and they handcuff you behind your back. And then, you know, you're in for something awful. So, no, I never got used to this. But um, <clears throat> I think that 
for me, the effect of all this abuse was that I had a, like a near-death experience. I, every time you enter the torture room, you, you don't know if you're going to come out alive. And you don't know why they're doing this. And, you, you know, you, you've heard so many other people, you believe, being killed. Because um, that's what it sounds like. And perhaps it's true. You just don't know because you can't see. You're in your cell and they're in the room next door being tortured perhaps to death. So anyway, you, you have this long-term encounter with death. And what does this do to a person? In my case, it made me cherish life. You know, in that respect, it was yeah. good. I don't want to like recommend um, torture for people. But in this case, yes, I, I learned what I want to do with the rest of my life and how I should be as a person. And, I, you know, um, in my case, I am pleased that I survived. And I, I just think that um, what I want from the future is peace for Syria. And I'm regretful that we are so incapable of helping them come to a peaceful place. Did your captors and, and those who would see them down, because uh, it's not that everyone was on the same side, al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, ISIS, that uh, warring factions within uh, Islam were allegedly worshipping the same God and even obeying the same rules. They were from the same branch of Islam. Do they understand right. why they were killing each other? Um, yes, they do. Um, but it took some considerable brainwashing on the part of the commanders to get the younger people to murder um, their comrades, really, their comrades in arms. Everybody is theoretically on the same, all the rebels on the same side, um, opposing the Syrian government. And at a certain point, yes, the one rebel commander had to say to all of his underlings, those other people over there, some of them are your cousins, perhaps your brothers, um, they're in fact not Muslims, but they are unbelievers. Go kill them. And it is a it is a testament to the success of their brainwashing that they are able to persuade these young men to go and kill their own brothers. When you talk to them, I, I would often ask them this question, like, how can you do this? He's your brother. And they would say, no, no, he's he stopped being my brother once he submitted to this horrible ISIS regime, which is not Muslim. Now, eventually you were released. The Qataris, I believe, were involved in, they were instrumental in getting your release, whether uh, money or how much money changed hands is maybe a moot point. Um, but why do you think at that particular time your release was possible? I mean, what, what had happened was that um, ISIS began executing its prisoners. Now, the U.S. government never imagined they were aware that ISIS had a whole bunch of prisoners. Um, but they did not value the lives of those people enough to guess that all along during the entire course of these people's imprisonment, it was the case with me too, the captors had a gun, guns to our heads and they were telling us, if ever your troops touch a hair on the head of any of our guys, we will kill you so fast. Now, at a certain point in um, the summer of 2014, the ISIS people began uh, attacking a religious minority in Iraq called the Yazidis. Immediately, the Barack Obama knight in shining armor and the U.S. government went to bomb the ISIS men, and that was it for the U.S. hostages. They were going to be killed from the moment we started bombing ISIS. Now, it, it's still even to this day, I don't think, the policymakers in the U.S. government are aware that by, by saving the Yazidis, they killed James Foley and, and Stephen Sotloff and Peter Kasich and um, Kayla Mueller. They don't know that because they don't understand how, um, you know, how ISIS works. They don't, they don't know the basics. But basically, I, 
their responsibility is to protect um, the lives of their citizens, and they they help kill our own people by saving the Yazidis, which is a nice thing. But you know, it'd be nice if they take these issues, um, you know, the, the lives of their own citizen citizens into account when they make foreign policy decisions. But they're they're just not well informed enough about how the Arab world works to preserve the lives of people in danger. And it's it's a shame. What a frightening story, Theo Padnas from the Pat Kenny Show. Shane, I love these topics. They're absolutely brilliant. For, for people who are wondering what we're talking about, the five-second rule, explain it to us. Yeah, I was worried about, about this. T- I was thinking, is there enough in this topic to talk about? And you know what, Karen? There's actually too much in this topic to talk about. I could have been <laughs> here for an hour on this, on the five-second rule. But most people will be familiar with the five-second rule. It's so scientific that perhaps in some houses it's the three-second rule, it's the 10-second rule, it's the 60-second rule, depending on how clean you are. But it, for some people, it's a defined window where it's safe to pick up food or sometimes cutlery after it's been dropped on the ground and thus exposed to, to contamination. So there's no real scientific consensus on when it's applicable, but uh, there was a great survey done in 2003 in Illinois that found 56% of men and 70% of women, Kieran, surveyed were familiar with the five-second rule. So I think a lot of people in Ireland are familiar with this rule. Women more likely to invoke it, according to those stats. But in layman's terms, adhering to this rule gives us permission to eat something that fell on the floor as long as it's picked up within five seconds. So it's yeah. a very important rule. It is It is a very important rule. It is a rule that I use myself almost on a daily basis. I think it is totally legit to eat things that fall on the floor. Depends on the floor maybe. Do we know where it came from? It's bonkers. The, the history of this phrase is absolutely bonkers. And there are a couple of uh, suggestions as to where it came from. Involving Genghis Khan, one of them, would you believe? So this wow. is uh, quite fascinating. I know it, do- it doesn't sound real, but apparently so. Uh, it has murky origins, this five-second rule, but there's a great book, Did You Just Eat That?, uh, by food scientist Paul Dawson and the food microbiologist Brian Sheldon. And they trace the origins to legends around Genghis Khan. So the infamous or famous or whatever you want to call him, Mongol ruler, he's rumored to have imp- implemented this Khan rule at his banquets. So they write that if food fell on the floor, it could stay there as long as Khan allowed. The idea was that food prepared for Genghis Khan was so special that it would be good for anyone to eat no matter what. But they said in reality... People had little basic knowledge of microorganisms and their relationship to human illness back then until much later in our history. Thus, eating dropped food was probably not taboo before we came to this understanding. So people could, couldn't could see bacteria, essentially, Kieran. So they thought wiping off any visible dirt made everything fine. Uh, now, that's one of the more unrealistic, um, I guess, uh, origin stories. Roughly six centuries later, you had germ theory that evolved. Uh, and then one of the more fascinating origins, and a more likely origin, it has to be said, there's a legendary culinary uh, superstar, Julia Child. She died in 2004 at the age of 91, but she, she's recognized for bringing French cuisine to the American public. She had a great cookbook uh, and a very popular show that aired from, from 1963 to 1973 uh, called The French Chef. And there was a great episode, and I found it on YouTube last night, um, of Julia Child cooking uh, on The French Chef. And she attempted to flip a potato pancake in a pan, and she missed. Now, she didn't mention the five-second rule specifically, but fairly nicely summarised the attitude towards it. So you can have a listen to, to Julia Child in this clip. And then bake that in the oven for about, in a 375 oven for about 30 minutes. That makes a perfectly delicious dish. I'm going to see if that is flippable. Well, I'm going to try it anyway. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? But the only way you learn how to flip things is just to flip them. 
See, it has to be, it should have been browned enough on a crust and then it would have held together. That, that is a great hit. If no one can see it, you know, no harm, no foul. Yeah, and then, like, I, I did the proper research. I watched the video and it was four seconds, Kieran, between that okay. kick going out and her <laughs> tossing it back into the pan. So technically, uh, that could be one of the origin stories. People think that's the first time it was said on TV that, you know, if you, if you drop food, it was the first time, you know, everyone was prim, prim and proper back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and she just opened people's eyes. She was like, OK, if, if food falls out, that doesn't mean it's it's you have to throw it out. So so technically, Julia Child could have been like it's it's been in different things. There was a, a great uh, book as well in 1985, Wanted Rowing Coach, uh, that mentioned a 20 second rule. And then mm. there was an animated film called Osmosis Jones in 2001. A character follows the 10 second rule and eats a, a germ infested egg, which which then sends his body's immune system into disarray. So maybe it's not the best thing. Maybe yeah. five seconds is safer than 10. Yeah, a, a 10, 20 seconds. I'm, I'm, I'm really wouldn't be sure about that. I mean, has this got scholarly attention? Yeah, like you would think uh, scientists are, are, are off, you know, busy researching different important things. But this is important. And the University of Illinois recognized that uh, back in 2003. They did a, a fascinating uh, study into this five second rule and really went in depth on it. So what they did was essentially researchers uh, dropped foods. So researchers at Rutgers University debunked this theory. They dropped watermelon cubes, Haribo strawberry gummies, plain white bread and buttered bread from a height of five inches onto the ground. Uh, these surfaces were, were slathered in bacteria, which is just beautiful to think about. The, the surfaces used then, they, they used different surfaces like carpet, ceramic tile, stainless steel and wood. And the food was then left on the surface in different intervals. So five seconds, 30 seconds and 300 seconds. And then the scientists assessed the amount of bacteria transfer between surface and food. Now, the, the interesting thing that came out of this research, Kieran, since bacteria tended to be attracted to moisture, wet food had more risk to have bacteria transferred than dry food. So but the surprising part of the research was that carpet actually transferred fewer bacteria than steel or tile, which was a bit of a surprise. Wood was hard to pin down. It showed a large variation. And then Donald Schaffner, one of the researchers from Rutgers, a biologist, he said the five second rule is a significant oversimplification of what actually happens when bacteria transfers from a surface to food. Bacteria can contaminate instantaneously. So it's an interesting study. Uh, another interesting study done from Harvard as well that, that rec- uh, they got an IG Nobel Prize in 2004, which actually recognizes research that first makes you laugh, then makes you think. And I think that that kind of perfectly summarizes this five second rule. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Stuart, I was thinking about, you know, the idea of, of screenwriting. I talk to actors, directors, occasionally screenwriters all week long. Everything else in terms of a production, maybe you can get around a problematic actor, problematic director. Maybe, you know, there's a problem with a location or something. But the screenplay, in a way, is the most important thing for a film or a TV show because it's the start and ending of everything, right? Yeah, I don't know if it's the most important thing, but it's certainly if you've got a problem with the if you've got a problem with the screenplay, um, everything else about fixing that problem. So and in terms of you uh, chatting to students and stuff during this screen screenwriting festival and anyone who's interested in it, I was chatting to you beforehand and you were talking about the idea of, you know, failure uh, and, and, you know, Beckett or whatever, fail, fail better. Like we have this myth that, you know, oh, I'm going to write a screenplay or I'm going to write a book or I'm going to do anything. I'm going to make a radio show and I'm going to sit at home and I'm going to write it and it's going to go out into the world and be successful. Like that almost never happens. I'm I'm assuming that's your take as well. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I think that's, I think, you know, there's certain things, I think, um, if you're trying to write in, you know, for television, there's certain things that are given, you know, like you have to know the craft, you need to know, you know, you need need to know the way it works. Um, You need to have something to say. Um, you need to know the rules, even if if you're going to break them, you know. Mm. So, so there's so let's say you take those things that are given. I think after that, the most important thing is actually grit, um, just to just perseverance. Um, you know, it's it's pretty tough because so many. Um, a lot of people working will tell you about this. It's all about, um, you, you know, pe- people are always saying no to you, you know, so it's no yeah. point. So like I have, you know, I, I genuinely have lost count of the number of projects that I've been involved in, written pilots for, written long treatments, researched at length and haven't happened. And some of them have been pretty good. Some of them have, you know, uh, been, you know, a lot of them have been international um and they they fall at the last hurdle, or they're just not uh, what they're looking for, or whatever the whatever the reason. So mm. it's so I think that that's a that's a kind of crucial uh, you know uh, quality that you need is just that perseverance, just to keep working, keep working, keep working. Um, that's it. And- and just so people are clear, this is, you know, still goes on for you. You're not talking about Stuart in a garret, you know, starving away 20 years ago. I mean, you still have projects that don't get off the ground for all those reasons. You oh, I mean, this year I've had three. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so, so I, you know, I generally try and juggle about, you know, five, six, seven projects. And mm. so each of them, people think, you know, you're just, you know, you're writing at your desk and you're going, I, I wait, I'll wait for inspiration to uh, strike you. And it's not really like that. It's, you know, if you're looking at a particular area, whatever it is, you do a lot of research, read a lot of books, um, really immerse yourself in a feeling, you know, the, the uh, like a backstory um, to even begin to think about characters or a story. So each time, you know, you're, you're kind of like going to the well each time on that, you know? So, mm. so um, uh, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the reality, you know? I mentioned The Alienist at the start there, and, you know, because that's a big show. Yeah. You know, people know you, Taken Down, Love, Hate, these gritty Irish pieces of work very much of the place. Suddenly to be in the milieu of, you know, late 18th century New York, but also to be in the milieu of this large beast of Paramount and TNT and stuff like that. Is that a big adjustment for you? Well, yes and no. I mean, absolutely, 100%. It's a a massive big thing in one way, in the sense that, you know, Love Hate was really made on a pretty small budget. I mean, you know, like even by like English terms, you know, it's like Mm. 600,000 an episode, which it sounds a lot in some ways, but it's really very little, little. And, um, and depending, let's say the aliens with Angel of Darkness, it was like roughly uh, eighty to ninety million, you know, uh, for eight episodes, depending on how you how you cost it. Yeah. So it's, it's a, the, the principles are are kind of the same in the sense that um, there's still a reality about how you do it, right? So there's mm. there's that thing, but in, in one sense, the system. Um, I mean, I, I didn't go from there straight into the aliens. There was again back to the failure. I'd done a number of different things. Uh, that that kind of came together. So if, if so, so the number of projects that had failed in the meantime, if they hadn't happened, then the alienist wouldn't have happened for me. What an interesting take, Irish screenwriter, producer, and playwright Stuart Carolyn from Screen Time with John Fardy. And of course, you can catch John every Saturday evening from six till seven.
Oh, I look, I mean, hands up. I, I, you know, yeah. I, I'm I'm a fan of the odd filter myself. I'm not, I'm not going to say I, I, I don't use them, particularly when I used to do the the early shift in the morning. It would, um, they could manage to take away that, you know, really exhausted look off your yeah. off your face. But I, I was interested in one of the points you made and, and your stories where, you know, as you said, you... You no longer use filters, but I wonder, and I, I'm not blaming, you know, um, personalities or, or influencers or that, but I wonder for the, the younger generation that are following loads of influencers across the world and bloggers and people online and celebrities, do, do they have to, do they have to take some kind of a responsibility around this or not responsibility, but is there a bit of a pressure, do you think, on the likes of um, celebrities basically to hold back on using the filters so that... Younger generation yeah, I think, maybe I don't. Think you're right. I, the thing is, I think I think we're all responsible. I I don't think because I, you know, the thing is, I got a huge, I got an overwhelming response to it that was in the majority positive. But of course, there were people that were nitpicking my message of what I was saying. And obviously, I it was off the cuff. I was emotional. I didn't put makeup on myself. And even though I don't use filters anymore, I normally come on my stories with a bit of mascara or a bit of concealer to hide the spots. You know, I do those kind yeah, of things, yeah. and I just didn't that day. I just picked up the phone and I started talking. I, I, I started to cry and I'm not the most attractive crier in the world. So it wasn't thought out. I didn't. I was very, I yeah, it was raw. Like, I mean, you knew you were, that. yeah. Do, do you think? Yeah, though, it was just a very genuine thing. It was a very genuine thing because I suppose I felt like all I wanted to do was it's an ad basically and I'm not affiliated. I have never worked for the brand Dove, but yeah. they did this ad where basically you see this image, this really glamorous image of what looks like an older woman. And then when you see it at the end, you realise it's a young girl who's put makeup on and has used various different filters to make herself look a certain mm. way for to get the likes, to get the comments from people. Yeah. And we've we all were, been guilty of that. Oh, we, yeah. And we, we were actually Yeah, we were only talking actually about this, um, the Dove ad and the research they found recently about young girls and their self-esteem just here in Lunchtime Live actually with Yvonne Connolly yeah. as well last week. But you pleaded with your followers, Sheila, to to stop using filters. Um, yeah, I suppose, look, I stopped using them a year ago because I realised that as, as as seductive as they were and how in the at moment they made me feel better, I, I realised that there it was causing damage because it's making me feel like every time I look in the mirror and I see what I actually look like, that I'm telling myself and I'm, tell, I'm sending a signal to my brain every time I use a filter that I'm not good enough as I am. So I need this boost. And if you keep doing that, and I suppose the truth is, I think we need to set an example for our kids. And I don't, I'm not necessarily just speaking to parents. I think all of us, because kids do what they see. They, they will, that's, that's it. Just, that's simply how it works. They, if they see a behavior, I see it with my own son. He's picked up on traits from myself and my partner. Thankfully, a lot of them are good. Some of them are the kind of ones where you go, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, you just don't want them picking up on bad habits that will will ultimately, I think, cause a lot of damage down the line. And we know from a lot of studies that are carried out in terms of how not just girls, but boys as well, and how their self-esteem has been impacted by this new world of technology that, of course, has its pros, but has its cons. So I do think there is a responsibility with each and every one of us to do better. I think, look, if if you know better, it's that classic line, if you know better, you do mm. better. And now we know from all we've heard about these things, that they're not actually a force for good. So why keep using them? Why send that signal out to kids? And also, I'd like to think that I've learned a few things at this stage of my life. I still feel incredibly immature. In a lot of ways, I still feel like I have a lot to learn. But I'm not, I'm not, you know, 15, 16, where I'm believing everything I'm seeing. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. we have to be aware that if you're younger, naturally, you're going to be more 
easily manipulated and maybe that discernment isn't quite there. Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live. Villagers, as heard on the Tom Dunn Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. There is a big stigma. There's teenagers that never stepped foot outside of Morass. They never went into the city because they feel like there's nothing there for them. They feel like they're not being accepted because it's like we're outcasts out this way, you know. Do you know what I mean? It's just mad. Like it's just there's all the development that's going on in Raheen and Castle Droy and all those areas, but there's, there's nothing happening out here for people. So it's nearly like you're forgotten about. It's, you hit the nail on the head, Miss. We're forgotten about out here. That's the song we're forgotten about. Well, only Gardier's not forgetting people. That's about it, like, you know. <laughs> there's opportunity everywhere there's great schemes and stuff to be honest Myros probably has the best schemes but it's the situations that kids can be in like the opportunities are there but it's the, the people that they could end up growing up around like but that's something that's been going on for years so that's down to the parenting I suppose that, like your opportunities are there but you have to make sure that you, as the parent that you're giving them the opportunity to use the opportunities yeah. what would you like to do when you leave school I'd like to be an electrician or I'd like to be a builder. That's one or the other. Like you know, you see the scramblers going around there, and you see the horses. That seems to be one of the big things for younger people around. 
we have lots of facilities around here. We have academies that can help us, but at the moment with COVID, we can't really go down. But yeah. Do you think Moyros gets a bad name? Well, sometimes it does, but we're going to make the best that we can out of it and do what we can and make it a good place. Some of the locals there speaking to me about what it's like living in Moyros in 2021. Ramey O'Holloran of Speedline Engineering is the only employer in Moyros. He spoke to me about the job prospects that are here for young people. I'm involved in business out here in Moyros 38 years now. I'm not saying that as a boss, but I'd say it's a disgrace. It's an absolute disgrace that I am involved in a business here with no other businesses around me. There are schemes, but a scheme isn't a career. It's not a job. There isn't a day that passes that some woman will ask me, is there any chance that her young fella or daughter has any chance of a job? The council, I'm not saying it's government, but what I am saying is somebody is responsible. Somebody needs to stand up and say, we need to get jobs. Recently, 15 different small contractors in Limerick created a massive thing within regeneration areas because they all got work. It was so successful that it was suspended for some reason. What the social clause does is it gives the local builder, he automatically go to the local guys that are doing work. It doesn't exist. And Limerick City Bill started in 2008 because we realised we weren't getting anywhere with jobs. In relation to, to City Build, explain how that came about. The group that I'm involved with are very much involved with the youth. If you're on drugs or coming off drugs, in prison, out of prison, we'll try to get you something. We've had 126 start-up companies since 2008, 240 employed, probably more now. And what our hope then is we have an incubation. It's an industrial place where we'll bring guys in. If you had a business idea and you come to us and you can't afford your insurance or assurances and everything else, we'll pay that for you and we'll get you a job. At the moment now, I'm dealing with two young guys and, and they're off the drugs. They got caught up in the drug system because they're self-medicating. I am from a working-class area, and it frustrates me completely to see young men caught up in that. They really don't have a choice. People think that they have a choice. And then the controversial thing is they condemn the young fellas that have horses. If there was a saddle on the horse or a cap, oh, it would be brilliant. I'm down below near fields, and I see those young fellas. The love that they have for the animals is unbelievable, and they're all being tarred with the same brush. Some of those young fellas are dedicated. The only one young fella taught me is the only friend, the only friend that he has, a horse. It's like this is the forgotten part of Limerick. One of the first things that strike you when you enter Moyros is the amount of horses that are dotted across the estate. It's clear from chatting to the locals just how important they are to some people. Keep the head down with the horses. That's the main thing in Moyros is horses, like... Anything happens then, like we all go crazy, but the pound comes in and takes them, like even takes the ones that's tied up in the field with rugs, warm blankets on them, with feed next to them, hay next to them. They're minded, they're well looked after, like you know, there's after all our hard work and money into them and all, like you know. Gets up at half nine and it goes back to like probably half twelve, like I goes to sleep and then back again with the horses. Really? Like. So but are you just working with them all day? All day, every day. Horse washing, breaking them, going them to falls, the big horses, getting ready to prepare for races and stuff like that, raw racing and all, like you know. And is that what you'd like to continue into the future? Yeah, it's like the kind of listen, it's keeping my head down, it's keeping me out of prison, like you know, so I love. 
I, I was a jockey before in Kildare as well. Like, I, well, it, I went to race up there. And you just you mentioned like about keeping out of prison. Do you think that happens to a lot of young lads around here? Ah, uh, there is. Like you can get brought down the wrong path. It's easy. Like it's easy enough. I've been down the wrong path. I've been on the good path. Been down the bad path again. I'm back on the good path again. Like you know. Yeah. So yeah. like like from myself, like from growing up around her, I was getting in trouble with the guards. My mother was getting evicted of me. And stuff like that, and then I started getting into the horses there with Claire McCann down there, and then they sent me off up to the collar. Ten month child come home once a week, so and then I got kept on them by a like a trainer, proper trainer, Connor Dwyer, professional jockey as well. Like he was, he won the gold cup and stuff as well. I got kept on with him as well. But I came back here, I was in a relationship that went wrong, so and then I went down the drink and whatever, and then I went a bit crazy, and then all charge sheets and all, but. Now I have horses to keep my head occupied again. I'm back with the horses, so I keep my head down, like you know. But, uh, do you think there's enough opportunities for jobs for people around here? Ah, uh, there's not really. Look, you can see yourself. Like there's all fields, like with nothing done to them, like you know. Like there's houses there that are getting knocked. Like they should put like some sort of equine something or something there. Like they'd be they generally be well looked after, like you know. Yeah. Well, people probably look down on top of say, look, oh, my loss is this, my loss is that. Like this is a lovely place. Like it genuinely is. I'm living here what 23 years, like. You know, like I said, you can get up brought up the bad way and you can brought up the good way, like, you know what I mean? So I got brought up a bad way, but I put this up to ourselves, like, they put our head and mind into it, like, you know what I mean? Keep our, ourselves on the right path. Like, for only for horses, like, I'd generally be locked up for the rest of my life or probably in a hole. And they're my main things, like, they're, they're like babies to me, like, you know. From the Pat Kenny Show. On Sunday, GAA legend Kevin McStay joined Joe Malloy on Off the Wall. A lot of good achievements there. Division 2 title. Connacht title first in seven years for Roscommon back-to-back quarter-finals yeah. uh, you went in initially with Fergal O'Donnell joint manager for 16 and then how rough is it to have to turn in and, and say and be honest and say this isn't working we're going to have to you know either you're going to have to take it on or I'm going to have to take it on we're going to we're gonna have to figure out something here but ultimately this great idea we had isn't working yeah. why wasn't it working and, and did you try and not have to face that for a while? It's to, to answer. I think the first question is that you know how tough it, it, how tough is it to come to that decision? It's 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 shocking, Joe, when friend, when friendships are involved. And he was a friend, was he? Yeah. Uh, well, not a close friend, but a fellow I had huge respect for. I played with him on okay. that team I was talking about that we won won the the club with, and I'd managed him. Uh, he was in, in, towards the end of his career. He was a fantastic player for us. Like he essentially won it on his own. A marvelous player for us. Um, and I had huge respect for him, you know, like he was the uh, marvelous reputation around around the county here as a footballer and as a football person. Um, and so I was, you know, very, very friendly with him. But he's, he wasn't a guy I'd been seeing every minute of every day prior to our comedy. And that happens in football a lot. You yeah. know, I, I, I don't call them, you're not bestie with these people but you know I'd meet Trap or Anthony Finnerty tomorrow we're friends again you know but I haven't seen him in you know two years perhaps but the minute you get into his company you know here's one of my old friends you know mm-hmm. that type of thing um, so it was it was very difficult you know and um, does that kill the relationship? Uh, it does very much so yeah I mean he was he was very hurt about it I know I, like I, I I totally understand that um, because he thought you know like like we all did we all as to, to, to repeat that term at early story, I said we all went in very well intentioned. I say that all the time about it. There was no agenda from anybody, none. There was no no egos around our get up. I can tell you that, and um, it just was not providing the environment that I thought 
we could do well in. We had a young team and there was a lot of tough love around it uh, because there had to be. Because Roscommon were, you know, I think they had lost to Fermanagh, I think, in, in, in a, perhaps a qualifier. You know, they were just not... They were, Roscommon were losing too many ordinary games that they should have won. Mm. There are games that Roscommon won't win, but then there's another tranche of games that they should win. Mm. And, and, and they weren't. So we went in um, eyes wide open saying this is a massive job. But, but the, the first year of it just... It, it, I'm going to have to take most responsibility for it because I, I, put, I put together the, 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 uh, the management team and it just did not gel. Um, and I don't mean as in there was rows or blazing rows. It did. It just didn't create the conditions for us uh, that I thought was going to lead ultimately to success. And uh, I thought I thought joint management would be, would be a great idea, Joe. Um, but but it wasn't. It just wasn't. I, I I wasn't having the influence I wanted to have. I'd say Fergal was having to check with me on everything he wanted to do, and that that may not have sat well with him either. Uh, then Liam was trying to find a role as a coach versus David uh, and Stephen, the other coaches, and there was just it just didn't it just wasn't a nice hand in glove situation, and uh, and ultra, and then the defeat to clear, you know, where we were we were so poor, you know, we we were our, we were very low on morale, very low on energy, but mostly low on morale. We just it was a game that we were going to lose the minute we lost to Galway, if if you know what I mean. Uh, and that shouldn't be. You know, we should have been ultra competitive against Clare above and Pierce Stadium, but we weren't. And then I, I, I decided that we, we were going to have to change things. And once you make that decision, it's done. Mm. Uh, and you have to go through with it. And I know that was very, very difficult for for the lads involved. Kevin McStay on Off The Ball. Talk to me a little bit about recording that video and, and, and what you had in your mind when you hit the button. Well, uh, I'd been asked to do a talk on, and it was men's mental health. Uh, it was a day, in, and this company had asked me to go in and give a talk about it. And I was like, I don't know what what I what I'd talk about, but I had been going to therapy, and I had been going through this sort of like, you know, I'd finished up at a job, the breakfast show had finished, uh, which which which, in radio terms, it was the right thing for them to do to change, but I just felt. You know, I mostly just felt the rejection and the disappointment and, you know, you kind of put so much effort five years into building something up and then it's just taken away from you. And you've got to try and deal with that. So therapy was the thing that I did because I needed to check in about a few things. And I thought, well, look, if I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? So one of the things that my therapist talked to me about early doors was vulnerability. And I didn't really know what the word vulnerability meant. Um I thought being vulnerable meant, you know, taken to the hurling field without a helmet. But um, when I realized when I realized what he was talking about, it really struck me that it's OK to say, here, look, I'm struggling here. I'm not happy with this situation. It's not about pointing the finger. It's not about being angry with anybody. It's not about blame. It's just about putting your hand up and going, this is not sitting well with me. Like, I'm I got to figure this out. And these are the reasons. So when I was asked to talk about to talk to this, uh, these people in this company about mental health, I thought, well, I want to talk about vulnerability. What am I going to talk about? I sat down and, and I tried to write something. I couldn't write it. So I said, look, what I'll do is I'll turn on Instagram live and I'll just talk to whoever is <laughs> jumps on live. And I will just talk my speech, like try and be as vulnerable. Like 
as vulnerable as I could be in that moment and just tell people what's going on with me. And that was it, really. So I just recorded it live and, and stuck it up and, and and people watched it. And it really helped me. It was uh, but it helped me write that that, that talk I needed to, to, to give the next day. But it also gave me a real sense of what vulnerability meant and how vulnerability can help. And it's interesting, isn't it? And you do talk about this as well. Particularly men are kind of told from childhood to kind of man up and and not to cry. And vulnerability is really stamped down a lot more. And I, I hope we're we're changing that conversation a little bit more. And we're going to get into a minute about why you're turning to, to kids and, and helping kids with mindfulness to to give them the language, I suppose, that maybe our generation didn't have growing up about how to handle life's normal stresses and anxieties. Yeah, like... Um... It, you're told, yeah, you're told to man up, to grow up here. And the thing for me to, the right thing for me to do in that situation, like every fiber in my body was telling me to stay quiet, keep your head down, don't say anything negative about your experience because, you know, you might need another job at a company or, you know, what would other people think if, you know, if they see, like, why would somebody give you a job as an anchor on another show if they thought that you were suffering and that you couldn't cope with the disappointment? All these things go on in your head and they're all, that's all wrong. That's all misinformation that you've been, just been told by the the you know the older generation or by society that you you don't tell people how you're feeling and that you're disappointed and you feel betrayed and you feel all these things and you know you, you don't do that don't tell people you're upset and that you're going to see a therapist to figure it out but if once i realized that that's exactly what you need to do in that situation it was important for me then to try and tell as many people as possible that this is you talk to your wife, tell her that you're you, I would have been old school, I suppose. And I would have if my wife, Suzanne, kind of suspected there was something going on. She'd be like, are you OK? And I go, yeah, it's fine. Everything's grand. You know, that great word grand. Whereas now I just go, I tell her what's happening. We have a good chat about it. I tell her the truth and then we can figure it out together. So it's a much more. We have a much better relationship because there's much more honesty in it. Now, I drive her mad because I used to be this kind of strong, silent type, you know, that type of guy didn't really talk much and said everything, everything was grand. And now she says, sometimes she has to say it to me, Kate, would you just shut the F up? I know. Well, you see, you're a broadcaster, like you're well able to, to, to talk. And I know how sometimes that can happen in relationships. You're just on your way to bed and you go to say goodnight and then they launch into something. You're like, oh, God, not now, not now. But you're right. It is really important to talk. It is indeed. DJ Keith Walsh from Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. And of course, you can tune in to Claire every Sunday morning from 9 till 10. OK, I'm going to leave you with now. Sean Moncrief and So You Think You're an Adult. Have a great weekend. Now, here's your first question. For the past year, I've read about all the people who made the most of the year of lockdowns, whether baking or developing their cooking skills. Others have lost weight. Some have reinvented themselves. Good for them. I did none of that. My husband, however, took up sea swimming and running and is incredibly smug about the whole thing. It's all he talks about when anyone calls the house or his mobile. He always finds a way to crowbar it in. He'll pass remarks to me like, you need to get involved in something like me. Sea swimming changed my life. You should make most of this time 
you'll never get it back. And on and on and on. This is most days. He buys all this gear and wears it on days he's not running so we can break them in. Showing off, really. I find the whole thing boring and pretentious. I have found this year hard. I've worked full time and in my off time, I just wanted to be that, off. I want peace and quiet. At least when the husband is out of the house being his best self, I can get some me time. Him focusing on things I haven't done really bothers me. I didn't want uh, to do them. If I did, I would have. I think I'm at snapping point at this stage and I think the thing that I may do this year is harm my relationship. But his smugness and judgment is constant. I don't think I'm overreacting. I need him to lay off. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.